Welcome to the Truth Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Harrison. The Truth Matters Podcast is a production of Grace to You, the Bible teaching ministry of John MacArthur. And my guest today on this episode is Cam Butel. Cam, welcome back. Second time here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again, Daryl. How you doing? You doing good? Much better than I deserve. Good. I like when you say that, man. I like you say that. It's more than a cliche. It's true. Ken, we're here to talk to you today about a blog series that ran Mm -hmm. back in February and March of 2015 titled Evangelical Syncretism. Mm -hmm. Evangelical Syncretism. Can you give us some background on that blog series? How did it come to be? What was the impetus impetus for for that series of blog articles? Yeah. So um, mention the word syncretism, and normally we might think of... um, different religions or, you know, pagan practices being blended uh, together, a blending of different religious views. And, of course, you know, um, missionaries, uh, see that on the mission field, there was um, a a Protestant missionary spoke to me um, once, and he talked about how when he was in South America, a Catholic missionary was bragging about how he incorporated practices of the local religion into the Catholicism, and his criticism of Protestants was that they didn't do that. And we shouldn't do that. You know, there is um, anyone preaches any other gospel than the one I delivered mm-hmm. to you, let him mm-hmm. be anathema. Mm-hmm. Paul pronounces damnation on that. We do not blend. It's an exclusive gospel. It's a once for all delivered faith with a savior, the way, the truth and the life. No other way. So we cannot blend them. And for evangelical Christianity, that's a given. Mm-hmm. That's always been a given. But there are subtle forms of syncretism that have crept into evangelicalism that that aren't so obvious. And we wanted to talk about that, especially because we had um, the Shepherds Conference was coming up that year, and it was the summit on the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay. And we were saying that there are different worldviews being married to the Christian worldview in areas like um, uh church leadership, male and female leadership issues, like um, how we understand the creation account, uh, understanding also um, psychology and the Mm -hmm. biblical worldview. Can they go together? So those things were being blended in different places. And we wanted to address that because we thought that was the appropriate thing to do on inerrancy. Because there are a lot of people who say, I hold to inerrancy, but really they're um, practically, they're not. Right. And so we wanted to talk about that as a wake-up call and a reminder that we have an exclusive faith and, and we don't need to apologize for that and we don't need to um, try and take license with what Scripture says to, to accommodate um, what the Spirit of the age says. Well, what I wanted to do with you in this episode of the Truth Matters podcast, Cam, is go through all six of those blog posts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to talk about them individually. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the first one that I want to tee up with you was a blog post titled The Importance of Genesis. And there was a quote in that uh, blog post that I want to kind of start us off with, where that article quotes this as saying, what you believe about the opening verses of Genesis forms the foundation of your view of Scripture. Can you expand on that? Talk about why that's so important for believers. In case anyone looks for that post, too, I, I believe the title is The Genesis Crisis. Yes, we're going to get to that one next. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, but the importance of Genesis, if we really believe the Bible is true and God is communicating clearly, then um, that is the start point. Do we take it seriously or not? And if we take license there, what's to say we can't take license right. elsewhere? There are also important implications such as, did Adam really exist? Was there a real fall? Because Christ's mission coming to earth, his incarnation, 
was all about really um, triumphing where Adam failed or addressing that, mm-hmm. uh, conquering sin, taking care of the things that had been the curse that had been in place since Adam's fall. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have the fall, we don't have a literal Adam, then the issues of sin and death are things that are just natural things that have always been there and not a result of man's sin. You know, another quote that I want to tee up from that article on the importance of Genesis is this. There's intense pressure for believers to abandon the literal understanding of the Genesis account of creation and instead adopt a a view more accommodating to evolution and other scientific theories. How Christians respond to that pressure says a lot about their view of the Bible's inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency. Now, my question for you, Cam, is, you know, as I I contemplate that quote that I just read, I I tend to believe when it comes to our understanding of the gospel that the view of the gospel that's held by the vast majority of professing Christians doesn't include an affinity or an appreciation for Genesis uh, or or the Old Testament in general, to be honest with you. Why do you think that is? When we we think in the New Testament church, we think of what the gospel is, we we have sort of a New Testament-only starting point. We kind of disengage from Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament. Yeah, I remember a guy commenting once on Pocket New Testament saying Mm -hmm. it's like carrying around a book full of answers without ever knowing what the questions are. Mm. And... Genesis sets the foundation. It sets everything in motion. You look at um, Romans 5, a very important chapter on what Christ came to do mm-hmm. and what the problem was in the first place, and that connects directly back to Genesis 1 and Adam's fall, how sin was introduced, how Adam's sinful nature was imputed to all his children, and we are all his children. Mm-hmm. Again, if you don't have a literal Adam, then we might have different forebears, you and me, right. Daryl, mm-hmm. but actually we have the same forebears, so mm-hmm. we know that the issue is the same. We have the same um, sinful nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's important to know that because th- that we all have that same problem, and Christ fixes that same problem through his life, death, and resurrection. That's a good segue, uh, Cam, into the second article in that blog series, the one titled The Genesis Crisis. And just like the previous article, I want to start with a quote from that article. It says, most of us are familiar with politicians who obfuscate simple questions with complex political answers. Unfortunately, obfuscation exists in the realm of theology as well. There are scores of biblical scholars, theologians, and pastors who insert plenty of it into the first few chapters of Genesis. Rather than stand firm on the biblical account, church leaders acquiesce to unprovable theories and confuse the clear and consistent biblical teaching on origins. Now, my question to you, Cam, is what is the payoff for those church leaders for doing that? What do they get by acquiescing and moving away and stepping away from the biblical account of creation? Why do they do that? They don't have to sacrifice their academic credibility. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is pressure. And in fact, the Bruce Waltke quote in there, now it's a longer quote, mm-hmm. but in there, Bruce Waltke is admitting, saying, look, if, if we, if evol-, and he's saying, if evolution is found to be true, right. he's saying, if it is, we're going to look stupid mm-hmm. and then no one will listen to us. Right. And so, oh, what about Paul talking about the foolishness of the, of preaching right. mm-hmm. the, the cross? So um, there is, there is just large scale cowardice because the the pressure is that's the consensus that in an old earth worldview you at least that the earth is billions of years old mm-hmm. that evolution is accepted 
in academic circles. And so if you start adopting the biblical view of creation, you don't get a seat at the table right. and you're, you're, you're treated like a fool. And these guys are afraid of it. Basically, it's just, it's just a wimpy approach to accommodate and, and be able to move in those circles as well. And that's just too precious for too many people. And they are intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. They're intimidated by it. And so they have to reverse engineer the text. They're starting with that worldview and trying to project it into the text. Again, that's why we see the N.T. Wright quote there, you know, that he says when he reads Genesis 1, he sees emerging hominids. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in just a second. I'm going to ask you to talk about who N.T. Wright is and, and please, for my sake as well, define emerging hominids. But another quote I want to read from that blog post, The Genesis Crisis, is this where it cites a French naturalist from the 18th century by the name of Comte de Buffon, who said this, the, the article says that he scoffed at the six days of creation and the straightforward biblical genealogies that, that dated the earth around 6,000 years old, saying it, quote, had to be much older, about 75,000 years old, unquote, and that, quote, today the estimate sits at four and a half billion years, but it will surely change again as soon as someone comes up with a better, more convincing guess. Yeah. Okay. So my question to you, Cam, is again, what is the payoff for these church leaders for just acquiescing from the uh, creation account in Genesis? Do they not realize that God is going to hold them accountable for doing that, or, or do they not care? Yeah, I think they think it's one they can fudge on. You know, mm-hmm. it's not. It's not. They don't see it as a gospel issue. Okay. And uh, so they think, you know, I can, I can still preach the gospel. And, and accommodate that and, and seem respectable. You know, but they, they keep pushing the numbers out, of course, because it's based on time and chance. Yeah. Right? They're saying that we need more time and randomness to eventually get, get to the point where we are now. You know, you talk about how they just keep pushing the numbers out. Uh, as I was thinking about that quote in the article where we cite Comte de Buffon, um, I was thinking of Acts chapter 26, verse 8, where Paul Asked King Agrippa, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? And in like manner, along those same lines, I'm sitting here thinking, why is it considered incredible among you people if God created the universe in six little days? And, and also, I mean, if God created the world in six days, six 24-hour days, mm-hmm. and then there was um, people lived, we have lifespans and so forth— um, time, you know, spans of life, a global flood, etc. Um, how else would he explain that if he wanted to explain that clearly? Mm-hmm. How could he be more clear mm-hmm. in explaining that? And these views change too, you notice? Yeah. Their views always change. God's yeah. word hasn't changed. Right. He keeps saying the same thing. And you know what? That's what we see in nature, don't mm-hmm. we? We see animals reproducing after their mm-hmm. kind. Mm-hmm. We don't see people coming from monkeys. Right. You alluded earlier to N.T. Wright. Yes. Uh for the sake of our audience, who was N.T. Wright and what is his connection to the conversation we're having right now about the literal Genesis account of creation? Yeah, N.T. Wright, he's this incredibly smart Englishman who's the guy who finally figured out what the Apostle Paul was on about. Finally meaning? I'm being facetious yeah, there. Yeah, of course. But, but because uh, this is a guy who really um, ha- is so highly respected as a New Testament scholar. Mm-hmm. But again, he's saying he, I think Michael Horton's criticism is a good one of N.T. Wright in that he says he, he foregrounds the background and backgrounds the foreground. 
and he makes it about other things. N.T. Wright has very little interest in individual justification mm-hmm. and and dealing and 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 individual sins mm-hmm. and and the 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 worst person the thief the penitent thief on the cross could have spoken to in his last moments was N.T. Wright because mm-hmm. he wouldn't have had anything to say gotcha. to him about mm-hmm. individual salvation. But the quote we have there of N.T. Wright. There is, he's saying that, you know, when he reads Genesis 1 to 3, mm-hmm. he sees emerging hominids. Right. Now, his pants are on fire. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. That's just a lie. It's not there. Uh-huh. You read that. There is no way, no way you can see emerging hominids in Genesis 1. I need to ask you, because we're going to go further on this conversation about right, define emerging hominids. What, what, what is that? <laughs> well, you know, you ever seen the cover of Darwin's book? Yes. And, you know, you see that you see sort of like there's the monkey going all mm-hmm. four and then yeah. the people are getting more erect. Mm-hmm. So emerging, he's saying some guy somewhere along that scale. Right. Gotcha. That's 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 what I think he's getting at. There is someone sort of on the way to humanity and God's picking someone out at some point along there. What's the draw with a lot of young theologians today uh, of N.T. Wright? What's the draw to them? Maybe because he has a nice accent. I really don't understand. I For the life of me, I don't understand because i i think he's just snowing people with a lot of talk you know you you read him it's it's often um long-winded and 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 obscure mm-hmm. uh if he says something orthodox it's usually a caveat before he says something weird yeah and uh he's difficult to read but he's very fixated with his his new perspective on Paul right. approach, saying that Paul wasn't really on about individual justification, but about who was in the covenant community. And then he he goes off on all sorts of um, different things, not worth talking about here. Right. But just to say that he is he is respected. He's written really long books, and um, he is highly educated. Mm-hmm. And people, I guess, are just. I'm dazzled by that. I I don't understand. I really don't because everything I read of him just seems ridiculous, bores me to tears, mm-hmm. and a lot of his views are heretical. Including he does deny the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Okay. I'll 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 say that he denies it, but I'll say it because he endorsed Steve Chalky's book. Gotcha. Who who said that the penal substitutionary atonement is cosmic child abuse? That doctrine. So he is. Um. He has. But he, he holds enormous sway mm-hmm. and he has too much acceptance and there needs to be pushback, more pushback against what he says. Where do uh, theologians like Tim Keller, Derek Kittner and Bruce Waltke, you mentioned Bruce Waltke earlier, where do they fit into this whole conversation about the inerrancy of Scripture, particularly as it relates to the Genesis account of creation? Where do those guys fit in? Well, they would say they uh, uh, I can. As, as best as I can read them, they would say, and assuming I, I assuming that they hold to inerrancy, mm-hmm. um, they would say that God has spoken; the word is inerrant, but it's textually that's where the text is taking them. Their conclusions are derived from the text, right? And I I I, I push back against that and say, no, it, you you can't get there. If if aliens came down and landed here and were reading Genesis one, they're not going to see some old earth view, mm-hmm. gap theory, day age mm-hmm. theory, progressive mm-hmm. creation theory woven into the text. They're going to see what it says. They, the only reason they get to this point is because they are starting with um, an external 
um, extra biblical view mm-hmm. and and trying to force that into the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they the, their argument is that they hold to inerrancy because they're um they're getting the their results. That's how they're interpreting scripture. That's what they're saying. You know, in that same blog post, Cam, on the Genesis crisis, uh, it quotes John MacArthur from his book, The Battle for the Beginning, where John says this. says, the simple, rather obvious fact is that no one would ever think the time frame for creation was anything other than a normal week of seven days uh, from reading the Bible and allowing the Bible to interpret itself. The fourth commandment, John says, the fourth commandment makes no sense whatsoever apart from an understanding that the days of God's creative work parallel a normal human work week, unquote. Now, my question that, to you is that that believers should allow the Bible to interpret itself applies to all of Scripture, right? Not just Genesis. Yes. But talk about how that principle is especially applicable to the Genesis account, the principle of, of allowing Scripture to interpret itself. Well, John alludes to the giving of the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. the the um, the Sabbath commandment, that um, you know the reason for the Sabbath commandment is because for in six days God created the world and rested on the seventh day. Mm-hmm. So it's based on that. It's treated as as history. Mm-hmm. You know, are they supposed to work for six thousand years and then rest for a thousand mm-hmm. years, or work yeah. for six billion years? Mm-hmm. No, that's the pattern. And there and and why should we take him? Why should we not take him at his word? Right. I think that's John MacArthur being John MacArthur right yeah. there, is, 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 uh, clearly explaining what the Word of God says. And and you know what the great thing is is that God has given us His Word. God doesn't have a problem explaining Himself. Mm-hmm. All these guys seem to think God needs their help right. to clarify what He's saying and to keep everybody happy. Well, sorry, no, He doesn't. In fact, you're confusing what He's clearly stating. Mm-hmm. It's not confusing at all. Anyone mm-hmm. can read that. And understand that. In fact, I've even heard um, a Hebrew scholar from Oxford, I, I think it was Oxford or Cambridge, who just said he, he was not a Christian. Mm-hmm. He didn't believe, certainly in the young earth view. But as his reading of Hebrew says, the, the meaning is clear from there. You, you know, if you are, are going to take this at its word, then that's what it's saying. Right. Is that God's creating the world in, in six actual 24-hour days and resting on the seventh. Yeah, one last quote that I want to take uh, from that article, The Genesis Crisis, um, says the opening chapters of Genesis are not up for debate, nor are they negotiable. The academic credibility of our faith is meaningless if we're so quick to sacrifice the meaning of Scripture at the altar of public opinion. Better to be counted a fool for the sake of God's word than to be embraced for our willingness to compromise it. Now, can you flesh that out a little bit for us, Cam? Is if you don't mind, is that closing comment there perhaps an allusion to First Corinthians three nineteen, where the Apostle Paul declares, "For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God," or perhaps Romans one twenty two, where Paul says, "Professing to be wise, they became fools." Um, is is this whole issue? Does it boil down to a matter of? Uh, professing believers not wanting to be fools for God? You know, our success as evangelists hinges on our faithfulness to the message we're called to preach. Indeed. God is converting them. And um, these people are practical Pelagians. And mm-hmm. we'll talk about that later, mm-hmm. I'm guessing. But but they're, 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 tr- they're thinking man's problem is persuasion. Right. Man hasn't been persuaded enough. Sinful, no. The problem is that they love sin, and we, we try to find a way around everything. And, mm-hmm. and these people who are adopting these old earth views, 
it sets a precedent for other areas of Scripture. If you can do it there, why can't you do it elsewhere? And also, it, it assaults on some basic gospel truths of um, the fact of our sinful nature, of the fall, of the fact that you and I, Daryl, we have the same great-great-great-great-grandfather mm-hmm. going all the way back. Yep. Uh, and, and we have the same problem, and we need the same Savior. Moving on to the third blog article in that series, Cam, titled Inerrancy and Evangelical Syncretism, a quote that I want to start from that article says this, Today, even among conservative believers, there are many preachers, teachers, and scholars who are working hard to make the church and the Bible more accommodating to contradictory worldviews. Intimidated by cultural agendas and eager to find favor with the unsaved world, these men and women capitulate to blending truth with all sorts of error, evolution, feminism, psychology, and ecumenicism, just to to name a few. By syncretizing truth and error, they encourage others to join them on the slippery slope of compromise, exposing them to erroneous doctrine and corrupt worldviews. Now, uh, Cam, I think you could add critical race theory, liberation theology, and the social justice uh, t- uh, heresy to that list of uh, heresies that I uh, noted in the quote that I just read. But we alluded to this earlier. Can you define for us, give us your sort of kitchen sink definition of syncretism? What exactly is syncretism and why is it so dangerous? As, as I said earlier, syncretism is a blending of, I mean, in the, in the on the mission field, Syncretists are largely seen as people who blend mm-hmm. different pagan practices mm-hmm. or even blending in some places in, in, in Africa. It's been seen where, where, the, where the, the paganism has been blended with the Christianity yes. in some way. Mm-hmm. And of course, we don't do that. But here we're seeing our own kind of syncretism, that they're, they're trying to accommodate worldviews that aren't compatible with scripture, so evolution isn't compatible with scripture. Evolution isn't compatible with science, right. let alone scripture. Right. But also, um, feminism, things like uh, psychology, mm-hmm. uh, and and yeah, you go on and say critical race theory, trying yeah. to project those ideas onto right. the text. I mean, you know, I heard someone preaching from the woman at the well mm-hmm. in Samaria the other day, and he was basically bringing that into sure taking the wrong freeway exit into the wrong hood. Yeah. See, yeah. yeah. So there you go. That's critical race theory imparted on the, to John four. I mean, it's, it's it's amazing. You know, one other quote from the article cam says this: theologians have never been charged with the responsibility of shielding cultural norms from biblical assaults. Yet that is precisely what many do. Unquote. So again, Cam, this begs the question in my mind: What's the payoff for these guys? I keep having to come back to this same question: What is the payoff? Uh, for these leaders? Is it name recognition? Is it popularity? Is it getting a blue check mark on your social media account? Is, is it fear of man? I mean, what's the deal here in your opinion? Bottom line, it's growing the kingdom of God by making the gate wider. Yeah. Making the Big narrow gate wider. Yeah. That's really what they're doing. They think if I make the narrow gate wider, then the kingdom will get bigger. No, you just get a bigger herd of goats. Yeah. I like how you said that, man. A bigger herd of goats by making the narrow gate wider. Um, Cam, let's move on to uh, the fourth article in this series on evangelical uh, syncretism. It's titled The Inflexibility of Inerrancy. The Inflexibility of Inerrancy. And it says this, in October 1978, 
334 evangelical leaders gathered in the city of Chicago to formulate what is now known as the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. One of the younger attendees at that gathering was John MacArthur, who was just shy of a decade into his pastorate at Grace Community Church. Those who formulated and signed the Chicago Statement did so in response to the large-scale assaults on biblical authority by theological liberals, unquote. Now, my question, my first question to you, Cam, is what was the primary issue that served as the impetus for the Chicago Statement um, on biblical inerrancy? Was it ecumenical compromise or something else, or was it sort of a culmination of things? I don't know the specifics of it, but mm-hmm. I understand that the, the liberal assaults were coming, questioning everything. Mm-hmm. Everything was fair game. Mm-hmm. I mean, the liberals, the the, the the parts of the Bible that were genuine were forever shrinking with liberals. Those guys are heroes, by the way. Mm-hmm. That, that, was, that yeah. was an important moment in church history. And uh, to think that John MacArthur is one of the last, um, I think one of the last survivors of yeah. the signers on that. Yeah. After uh, uh, R.C. Sproul passed away in 2017. Yeah, was R.C. Sproul there? Yeah, I think he was. Okay. Well, I, I think that they also saw the assaults of old earth views, and of course they were prevalent even back in 1978. Mm. And there's, um, as we talked about this earlier, there's two articles in there that intimate what some of the issues that were happening then, then that they saw as a threat mm-hmm. to the inerrancy of Scripture. Yeah, let me go ahead and take a couple minutes and quote, Article 12 from the Chicago Statement says, We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth and history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of scripture on creation and the flood. And here's article 18, article 18 from the Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy reads, we affirm that the text of scripture is to be interpreted by grammatical historical exegesis, taking account of its literary forms and devices and that scripture is to interpret scripture. We deny the legitimacy of any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to relativizing, dehistoricizing, or discounting its teaching or rejecting its claim to authorship. Those affirmations and denials erect a protective perimeter around the doctrine of inerrancy. The examples of evangelical syncretism we have highlighted these last two weeks are obvious breaches of those guidelines compromising the truth of Scripture and capitulating to worldly wisdom. Uh, any comments you want to add on either or both of those articles, Cam? Have you ever seen the church doctrine statement that says the Bible is our sole authority for all matters of faith and practice? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. That's a common statement. There's actually, that's a bit, that's a sneaky thing mm-hmm. they're doing there. What they're actually doing, this is what those, remembering what those articles said, they're basically saying, look, yeah, the Bible is inerrant on matters of faith and practice. So what it says is true on those things, but on matters of history and science, we, it's not a textbook on that. Therefore, we can lean on other sources. Mm-hmm. But no, inerrancy, what the draft of, of the Chicago Statement was saying was, no, it can be, you can take everything it says to the bank. Mm-hmm whether that is a matter of our Christian practice or just a matter of what happened in history, mm-hmm. we can trust it. Amen. And it hasn't been proved wrong. You know, that blog article, Cam, closes. This is, again, the uh, blog article on the inflexibility of inerrancy. It closes with this. 
Athanasius defeated Arius. Augustine defeated Pelagius. Luther defeated the Catholic Church and Christ defeated the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. All of these victories were won by wielding the sword of the spirit as godly men relied on the plain and perfect teaching of God's inerrant word. Now, my question to you, Cam, is why does it seem that every major battle the church has been engaged in over the last couple thousand years seems to boil down to the sufficiency or the inerrancy of Scripture? Why is that? It goes back to the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Back to Genesis again, right? Did God really say that? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Did God really mm-hmm. say that? You know, mm-hmm. that's the question at the beginning in the garden, mm-hmm. and it continues. Mm-hmm. It is satanic. Yeah, it is. Why are we? It seems like we're so we're so afraid to call it satanic. We're so afraid to call things satanic, demonic, mm-hmm. even though they are. But we don't want to call it that. I, I was hearing a guy recently talking about how we need to worry about the why. Christians need to be more concerned about the why than the what. And I, I said to him. <laughs> Well, I didn't just say to him, but I said to someone else who I was with at, at the time, I said, you know, isn't that what Satan's saying in the garden? Mm-hmm. Don't worry about what God said. Worry mm-hmm. about why he said it, because mm-hmm. he's worried that you'll be like him. Right. And we, God does not owe us an explanation for why he does things. He has revealed everything he has deemed sufficient for us to know in mm-hmm. his word. And we should take him at his word. Mm-hmm. He doesn't owe us the explanation or the motivation. Sometimes he tells us and sometimes we find out, but but he doesn't owe us that. And we need to concern ourselves simply with what he says mm-hmm. and be faithful to that. And that John MacArthur staked 50 years of pulpit ministry on yeah. that, just dealing with what God says. You know, that those drafters of the Chicago Statement, mm-hmm. uh, the historical, grammatical historical hermeneutic of, mm-hmm. of interpreting, just reading the scripture as it says, taking it naturally. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we, we complicate things when God is not complicating it. He has not written this for academics. This, mm-hmm. is, this is written for us. Mm-hmm. Isn't God kind yeah. that he, he writes and communicates clearly yeah. to his creatures? Yeah, to sinners like us. Well, Cameron, that was a lot of information that we just covered. Uh, I think what we're going to do is uh, leave it where we are in, in in this portion of the podcast and then take it up again on the other side in the part two. Thank you for joining me on the Truth Matters podcast. We've covered a lot of ground and we're going to see you on the other side.